Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Froke, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, we have a senior AE over at Deal. His name is Luke Floyd, and he's one of the most process-oriented sellers we've ever had on the show. Nick, why should people listen? Well, Armand, if you don't know where you want to end up, it's really hard to figure out which direction to go in. And Luke is masterful at building out his deal process from day zero all the way, not just to deal closed, but to customer having a successful project. And what that allows him to do is start to templatize different elements of his sales process and really plan how to be strategic in every single discrete interaction. And so if you want to figure out how to have an extremely, extremely clear view of how to win each and every deal, you may consider listening to this episode. And you may also consider looking at the show notes because Luke was kind enough to actually send all of the templates that he uses to drive his deals forward, including a recap email, a group recap email, and even a template you can send after you lose a deal to your prospects. And so you can download all of those in the show notes and a three, a two, a one. Let's get to the show. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Today's show is sponsored by Calendly. If you're interested in accelerating your sales cycle, improving your prospects experience, and booking more demos, there's one scheduling automation platform on the market that does all three. Calendly offers team-based scheduling, solutions and integrations for every department, and lead routing to instantly book qualified meetings from your website and match known leads to reps based on real-time Salesforce assignment. I find it really helpful when I have to book meetings with multiple people on my side so that I don't have to coordinate everyone's calendars. Get started today by checking out the show notes or Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes. All right, Luke, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Number one, 
build your own sales process. Your steps in your CRM are just not the same thing as understanding your sales process. Establishing your process by writing down step for step, literally every call, every action, every follow-up email, every LinkedIn touch that's going to happen in your ideal sales process will allow you to gradually increase the value of those touches by templatizing and automating those resources and then incrementally building their value over time. And you also need to know where you're going. So if you don't write it down and know it for yourself, you certainly can't lead your prospect through the process. Beautiful. What's number two? Number two is establishing your carrying capacity. So I see sellers with a ton of quota anxiety, especially around new roles. I know we're at the top of the year, folks starting new. Normally you have quota anxiety because there's no benchmark for what you're capable of. Once you have your process established from above, you can understand how your clients and how many you can carry in at the same time. That's your personal carrying capacity. So depending on your segment, you might have one client that that's all you can show up for. You might have a hundred you need to balance with SMB. But how well you show up for your client is really a function of how thin your spread. And as you know, the space right now with the economic climate, uh, you really have to do extra work to show off who you are to get results. Beautiful. Round us out, Luke. What's number three? Yeah. So number three is building consensus through messaging. So attention is more fragmented than ever. Reviewing the top project priorities at the beginning of each call and the start of the recaps, getting feedback on them, socializing them allows the project to be more aligned and smooth internally. So there's no surprises and everyone looks good for their win. So the way I do this is I write and summarize in bullet points in my recap email what I heard as their key priorities. A couple other things you might want to remember for rules of consumption, rules of three, easy to remember. Emotions are also tied to things like that. So if you put some emotion in those words, it helps. And then finally, consensus comes from how people feel. And consensus is what sells when you're not in the room. So it's all about how people feel, not what they know about your solution. So Luke, I want to talk about first laying out your sales process, and maybe we can use deal as an example. And then let's talk about, you mentioned you have templates for different parts of your sales process. Once you've laid it out, let's talk about afterwards what those templates are. Yeah, absolutely. So just for context, Deal is a platform that helps teams hire, pay, and manage anyone, anywhere globally. So I work with global teams. I typically sell into the HR, finance, legal, and talent functions, basically the back office. And this is a, a basically an action that I recently took uh, after working with my sales coach, I really sat down and thought about what is my ideal sales process? Now you can do this across multiple because you might have multiple different ways to sell. But I sat down and said, okay, what's my ideal way to sell? It starts with whether it's inbound, whether it's outbound, whatever it might be. Ideally, we want to start with an account plan so we can do our research. Where's my template for my account plan details? What research am I gathering? Then you eventually need to do some cold outreach or some outreach introduction, whatever it is. You need to break open the account. So that's where you're writing down all your messaging. But it really starts with the discovery call or whatever that first call, whatever you call it, qualification, whatever it might be. From there, I already have my templates. I personally use Dooley. I have my templates saved and I have different templates based on the type of call. So key things that I know I'm going to need to get out of the call, I start with my agenda in my template, literally word for word, what I need to say, the next steps. So that way you don't have to rely on your brain to pull through when you're maybe a little frazzled in the call. Once I'm done with that, discovery qualification call. We're obviously trying to figure out who to go to next. So I need to do some kind of recap email. In this recap email, I already have a template. At the top of the template, it has bullet points of their three priorities. It has the links to the gong recording. It has all the follow-up details and one-pagers and MSAs and all that good stuff. But the biggest thing and why it's up top are those three priorities. So it looks something like 
it sounds like we should continue the conversation. It's worth time continuing the conversation because your priorities are, it might be, you know, they really care about employee experience or cost savings are their priority right now or operational efficiency or compliance. We have a number of value props we sell to, but basically I'm trying to align what are the value props that I have that I know I can push and what are their priorities and how do those two things line up? That allows them then if they forward that email over to, let's say it's the HR manager I'm speaking with and they forward it over to somebody in finance, I can get finances take when we start that next follow-up stakeholder disco demo call. So we start with a qualification call. That's typically 30 minutes. We then move into a stakeholder discovery demo call, which is usually an hour light demo that has been customized based on the initial qualification details. And I'm kicking off that call the same way, agenda, introductions, and then here are the priorities I've heard so far. And then that allows me to say, what do you think? What's your experience with finance? Are these the same priorities your team has? And then we go through that call. At the end of that call, if there are multiple folks on it, I'm sending out individual emails as well as a group recap email. Got templates for all of those. And then also establishing next steps. Again, because I wrote the process out, I know the next step I want them to get to. So then it's just a matter of telling them, hey, this is where we need to go. Or do you have another suggestion? Right. So that's in my mind, the leadership through the sales process. Once we get done with the you know, stakeholder disco demo, we'll probably have to do some kind of proposal or pricing review. That's basically a business case review of the business case I put together in more complex deals. I might even be having champion calls in between here to build that business case. But at some point that business case is built and then we're ready to start introducing the executives, review that, review the pricing and proposal have a template for the business case, as you might imagine, as well as internal templates they can use, including even being able to put it into non-branded or lightly branded things that they could easily pull slides out of, for example, and make it look like their own work. And then after that, we get into the legal and procurement process. In my mind, this is where you can tell how efficient you are as a salesperson or how intentional you are by how easily your teams get through, your clients get through these processes. So legal, especially in what I do can be a big hurdle because there's a lot of compliance risk and divvying up that risk. So prepping my clients for, hey, this is what I typically see people do in the legal review. Here are some things you might want to know. We even have a guide that walks them through the MSA so their team can be aware of why we have written the way it's written. It's very specific and not like a ton of other software companies, MSAs. And then obviously, hopefully we're getting into onboarding and pilot proof of concept, whatever you want to call it. So for that proof of concept, I already have a pilot deck written out, already have my pilot plans, the things I'm going to need for those plans, if we're going to do a pilot or proof of concept with them. And then once that's successful, we get into full launch. This is where you're able to do things like employee communications materials. Each one of those items, then I have templates for and that's the baseline, getting the templates. Because once you have them all templatized, now you can go back and figure out, how can I be even more valuable? Where am I sounding like a salesperson? How do I improve this? That's my way of walking through and understanding my process and then incrementally improving it. This is fascinating. So just to play it back for the audience, you have the following steps that I wrote down. The first is a qualification slash discovery call. And that is ended with a recap email. The second is you have a multi-threaded stakeholder call, oftentimes going over a demo, and then you have a group recap email. Then you have a business case that you're building, and you have a business case template with that. Then you have procurement, and you have explicit descriptor language you always use on how the MSA is structured. MSA is the master subscription agreement. And then you have your POC, and you have a pilot deck with your POC. And then when you do full launch, you have employee comms and whatnot. And so you're taking all these transitions, 
at these different transitionary points within your sales process, and you have templates that keep pushing that deal forward, right? Can you talk about at the end of that first qualification call, right? What does it look like to wrap that call up? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So typically it's like, Hey, Nick, I'm recognized we have five minutes left on the call. This sounds like it could be valuable and worth additional time. What do you think? They say, yes. I say, okay, well, typically from my side, when I work with clients, my most successful clients will involve their finance, HR, and legal teams. Your HR, so we already got you covered. Who from finance do we need to bring on the next call? Because it's really going to impact their day-to-day. And part of what's effective about what you've done is because you have mapped out your entire sale from start to finish, step by step, and you've figured out all of the roles that need to be involved with each of those steps, you are actually qualified to make that recommendation for them. It's really hard to just pull a next step out of your pocket if you've not done what you talked about, which is the exercise of saying, Here's the brain dump of all the things I could do and probably should do when someone's evaluating my product or service. If you've not done that, it's really hard to just figure stuff out. Question for you, what do you do when they disagree with that suggestion of, well, you know what, we probably don't need finance involved in this. How do you, do you suss that out and say, wait, that seems wrong? Do you accept it at face value? What's your approach? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually where the fun begins because ideally they do have thoughts and opinions and I'm not leading the whole thing. So if they say, no, actually we don't need finance or they might say, actually, I'm just going to take it back to our team and let me see if it's worth a call, right? That tells me everything I need to know. You can't change people in sales. All we can do is react based on where they're at and de-risk based on where they're at. So from there, I'm hearing maybe they didn't get enough value. Maybe they don't trust me enough. Maybe I came off too salesy and they don't want to introduce a salesperson to their colleagues. So this is an area where I try to say, okay, well, typically my other clients are having finance come on because like we're doing expense approvals and like mass payments and uploading ACH payment methods. Is that something your HR team handles? I mean, everybody does it different. I like that. So you're giving justification for your ask there. I actually want to ask you something, Luke, because I've heard you use this sort of phrase a couple times where you're evaluating your messaging to make sure you're not sounding salesy. You're recognizing that if you sound too salesy, they might push back and say, hold up, I don't want you to meet the team. Are there things that you're consciously doing or consciously looking for in your messaging to say, hey, wait, I probably need to change that because it sounds too salesy? Yes. So the specific things I'm looking for, I actually just had a call yesterday where a prospect came on. He started off the call by saying, I've talked to these other vendors. I wasn't crazy about it. How are you different? And I said, look, to be transparent, I'm not going to tell you how they're bad because they're probably the right fit for some clients. Why don't we talk about why our clients choose us instead of them? And then we went into that. So number one, never badmouth your competition. Unless you are specifically asked to do a bake-off or side-by-side comparison on a feature set and you need to get into the weeds, your competition's also making money. They're, they're also a fit for somebody, no matter what we want to think about how evil they might be, right? So don't badmouth your competition, number one. Number two, it's about the project. It's not about the sale. Anything worth doing these days in corporate America that's worth, we'll say 50K or above, is going to have a project behind it, especially in this economic climate. You're not just spending willy-nilly. So what that tells me is there's somebody making a decision. There's somebody that can step in and involve the decision, but there's also multiple decision criteria at play that I need to iron out. And, And so if I'm focused on the project and give them advice on the project, like, hey, even if you don't move forward with deal, 
as you're talking to these other vendors, because you said you're going to talk to some of the competition, that's great. I'll even tell them the competitors to look at. I'll say, who have you looked at? Oh, that company, you're kind of, that's not really in the same ballpark. I'm not sure why you're talking with them. Or actually, if you like deal, you should look at these other vendors. Because at the end of the day, I know I can solve their problem better than anyone else can because I have done it a lot. And I have clients that can say that. So I want to look like I only care about their project and their project success because I do. Because I have also learned that this is a very cyclical environment. It comes back around. You know, I have closed loss that come back around in three months or six months. It's not like a year subscription that you got to wait until the renewal's up. And so in that world, showing them that you care about the project allows you to come in, let's say, 60 days later when onboarding is typically having problems and say, hey, how's the project going? You know, I just was really invested in making sure it was successful. Oh, and by the way, I know y'all aren't using us. What are the gaps you still have? You need any salary benchmarks? Do you need any compliance details? Like, how can I be helpful? Because I'm here for the project, not for deal or myself or my commission. The second you start doing that, you actually start building champions. Luke, I love what you're doing because what a lot of people do when they get pressured on competitors is they'll either feature dump about how they're the best in the world or they'll throw mud at their competition. But what you're doing is you're doing discovery up front and you're figuring out what's important to them. And then my guess is you're then saying, hey, for these types of customers in these situations, here's where we are the perfect fit and here's where we're not. And ideally, you've done a good enough job in discovery such that you know that they fit in that mold of that type of customer. Can you give a couple of examples, and if you want, you can use deal, of how do you describe the situations in which deal is most effective in a way that sort of lays landmines for competition without you sounding like you're throwing mud or without you sounding like deal is the best company in the world? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a great example. So this prospective client I was speaking with yesterday, he came in and said, look, we're wanting to expand into Eastern Europe. And we want to find tech talent in Eastern Europe. Our current vendor is not getting it done. How are y'all different? And so I said, hey, this is how, you know, this is why clients choose us. And I said, just one thing you might not even be thinking about. How do y'all feel about using contractors? Do you work with contractors currently? Talk about landmines. I know not all my competitors can support contractors, but we can. And Ukraine, Poland, Hungary, the workers will make more money as contractors because they get taxed less as contractors than as employees. So it's very popular. And if you're a tech company without a contracting option, you can lose talent because you don't have the ability to contract them. So this is why I said that. I said, are you sure? Like you've got to retain that contracting ability because the tech talent you're looking at. So I already know more about the tech talent that he's searching for than he does, right? So I can tell him what that tech talent needs and then align that with our unique differentiators. So that's an example of one area. Another area where I've kind of stood my ground and said, actually, you don't want to use this in that way. A prospective client, now a client, came in and was asking us to do something that we technically probably could have, but it wasn't really our sweet spot. And I didn't want to burn this logo, enterprise ed tech logo on a workaround or kind of a fringe use case. And I had just gotten done working with another ed tech company. I know I sound very confident and very decisive. That's only because I have previously done the work or had the success to feel that way. So don't think it's just you can roll in arrogant and do it. And so I suggested to this VP, I said, actually, you're in the wrong spot. That's not really what you want us to do for you. Let me tell you what you actually want us to do for you. And I told them about the success we had had with a similar company. They immediately put the RFP on pause that they were looking for, went with us, picked that up, and then they picked up the RFP a year later. So by just standing my ground, knowing what I'm good at, knowing what I'm not good at, 
me being the business and the outcomes I can deliver, I'm again, able to shepherd the project. If I'm a VP, do I really want to waste my time working with somebody that's not a good fit? No. So why would I disrespect that VP by wasting her time that way? Luke, at what point did you decide to push that person away? Because I can see, I'm thinking about that call where you're sort of getting some signs from this person that like, they're looking for something that they shouldn't even be looking for in the first place. And I imagine after two or three sentences, you could say, no, you shouldn't do that. You're thinking about that wrong. But my guess is you did a little bit more discovery. So like, at what point do you actually pull the trigger on pushing away? Yeah. So in that particular conversation, it had a lot to do with de-risking my odds of losing. (laughs) And so what I mean by that is if you're going to lose, you want to lose early. You don't want to play out a cycle where you have a 50% chance of win. That just makes no sense in my mind. So instead I listened to what her other priorities were. So what's your relationship like with your existing vendor? They don't move fast enough. You know, they, they don't have tech enabled interface. Oh, so it sounds like you really prioritize speed and experience. Okay, great. So then I'm turning around and flipping that in because there's no point in me talking about, hey, we did this for this other client. She might not even want that. I might've assumed that that's what they wanted. So yeah, to your point, you have to do some discovery before you can qualify out. But I've almost never regretted qualifying out because it usually makes them pull closer. And it also shows that I think more importantly, back to the not salesy thing, I'm telling her, no, I don't, I don't really want to do that thing. Maybe we'll do this other thing, but that's not really where we shine. That's not what most salespeople do. So you stand out. Well, it's really interesting what you say. I read a book recently where it talked about oftentimes before having any sort of confrontation with the buyer, like pushing back on them or asking them a very hard or direct question, salespeople have the tendency to want to build rapport with the customer before they do that hard thing. When in reality, the hard thing, the direct ask or pushing them away is what actually builds rapport because they say, whoa, this person is not just seeking out the sale. They, they have my success in mind. So Luke, one of the things you talked about earlier was you're getting these top three priorities and you're including it in that recap email. And then with every single stakeholder you meet with, you're going over those top three priorities again. And my question is different stakeholders at the organization are going to have different priorities. And so I might meet with the head of demand gen and they've got a list of three priorities. And then I meet with the head of content and thought leadership and they have different priorities. Do I turn it into a list of six? Do I like boot out one person's priorities and then they're mad at me down the line? Like how am I summing all of this stuff up so that I don't get myself discombobulated? Yeah. So I want, I want to be clear about what I'm, what I specifically mean when I say priorities, I mean the business values that they are pushing towards. Now, yes, some businesses might have six values they're pushing towards, but usually, like especially in our space and tech, almost everybody cares about cost savings, getting it done faster, like those kind of things. And then where they're at as a disposition, buying disposition, if you go back to the Hyman Miller stuff, that'll tell you kind of where they're at in their buying mode. So that's the way that I think of priorities. The individual decision criteria, the individual pain points, that all gets documented for the business case. And I, from that, they say, oh, actually, I don't care about that. Great. Let me go into, you know, take off screen share on my slide deck, go into the deck. Okay, what are we going to add where we missed? And now we're collaborating on building the business case together because I just take all that stuff we got in our deck, put it in a business case and run it by it, right? So that's basically the way that I'm doing it. I hope that there's contention about what the priorities are because that tells me I also have somewhere I can insert myself because anywhere there's friction, I can help tamp down that friction to get the project moving. 
Luke, one thing that to double down on Nick's point that I worry about is you send this recap email and I might have someone whose personal priorities as a people ops analyst, for example, might be super operational and in the weeds and going into that stakeholder demo call or even in that business case review, those priorities might get to someone higher up and they might squash this thing earlier. So if you get the sense that your champion is going to start running this by other people internally, how do you coach them on how to speak to higher level business priorities and not just their problem? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Frankly, this is an area that I could actually probably be a better salesperson asking second and third level questions and implicating pain. What I do right now is try to understand what's the business working on? And it actually has more to do with how you set up your calls than the questions you ask. So we get a lot of inbound leads at deal. I'd ask what brought you to the conversation today? That immediately gets you into the weeds. So instead, I started my calls with an agenda and then saying, tell me about the role that you do it. I can read LinkedIn. I know you do X, but I work with other companies that are 200 to 2,000 employees and a director of HR might do a lot of different things. I'm telling them about me. I'm telling them I've read about them. So that's the way that I try to kind of contextualize and set the table. Once the table is set, the email that I send over, let's say that the, you know, the accounting manager really cares about administrative burden because they're having to spend a week of their month every month getting their contractors paid. The CFO probably doesn't care about administrative burden, right? To your point. So the priorities are never framed in a way that anybody could object to them, right? So what I mean by that is if I'm putting in operational efficiency in the follow-up, I'm saying you're having problems with the payment, but that could affect in the long-term via XYZ. So the other thing is I'm not framing their priorities as their priorities. When I say their priorities, I mean the business priorities. Because the accounting manager is going to know this is a me thing. Yeah, it affects my job, but like the business probably doesn't care more broadly. And they can tell you (laughs) where that line is. You know, we don't have to figure all that out for ourselves. So the priorities that I'm recapping, I specifically call out their business and why our business is a fit. What you're doing is a lot of times sellers will get themselves in trouble because they'll put proposals out there or slide decks out there that are either too fill in the blank e or without the proper voiceover can be totally misconstrued. And what you're doing is you're taking the what you learn in discovery from them. And even if their priorities are quote unquote lower priority in the organization, you are attaching those to the business priority. So you are preserving the intent of the message that you have. Luke, what I'd love to do is, would you actually be open to in the show notes, could we share a couple of these? I I think you have like a recap email and then a group recap email. Could we share both of those with the audience in the show notes after this? Yeah, absolutely. I'll send over both of those as well as I have a uh, lost reply, like whenever I get like a a lost email, that's really instructive on how I keep the relationship open even after I get a no. Are there tools that you're using beyond some of like the big obvious ones like your sales engagement platform or your call recording tool? that you're leaning on heavily to make your yourself a more effective seller? Yeah, absolutely. So number one, uh, Google Alerts. So this is the whole thing, obviously, with accounts, right? And that goes into my whole account planning process. But you should, be, you should be setting Google Alerts for all your accounts. More than your accounts, you should be setting it for the key topics that you know about or should know about. So what are the key topics that your buyers are going to be concerned about? Number two, industry magazines, industry periodicals, podcasts. When I came to deal, I had never sold into HR or finance, the back office. I'd always sold to either farmers or, or salespeople. I know really broad. So 
I had to learn what HR cared about, had no idea. So I just started listening to podcasts, reading newsletters. That's been really effective for me. And it also allows me, we have an internal channel, a, a Slack channel called Market News, where I can post updates. Third, I have a tool called TweetDeck, which is free. If you have a Twitter account, obviously Twitter's a bit of a dumpster fire lately, but it's still good for Intel. And so that's the whole way I use it. TweetDeck is the best way to think about it is like you have multiple feeds on one screen. So I can do a feed of my homepage or I could do a feed of everybody that mentions at deal. I found this when I was in CRM sales, right? Somebody tags their CRM saying, hey, you suck. The CRM's out. As a salesperson, I was sliding in the DMs. Hey, I could get you up and running in a, a month, right? Let's do this. Now I use it more for market awareness, industry awareness. Competitors announce their new products on Twitter, right? So I can be the first one to know in the company often who's doing what, what the new hires are, all these details. But on top of that, I can then also track my prospect accounts, my prospects themselves and Twitter lists as well. So Twitter is all about Intel gathering and that's no different than like LinkedIn sales nav. You should be setting up those lists using all that good stuff. A couple of other ones, Loom, use Loom heavily. I fundamentally believe that it's okay to sometimes send over something with a Loom that would have otherwise required a meeting. And the reason why is because I believe in building value. My clients are very busy. A 30 minutes on the calendar with me sometimes just isn't reasonable. So I can either get rejected or I can build value by walking them through the thing with the loom. The other thing I use is Dooley. Obviously, we already talked about that. I also use Auto Text Expander, which is a Chrome extension. I use this very heavily. So as y'all know, if you've ever done any social selling, LinkedIn isn't exactly easy to automate or integrate, right? So in the early days of social selling, back in 2016, when I wrote a book about it or something, I would basically have all these different initial outreaches ready. So all I'd have to put in is like the at symbol and the letter C, and it would pop in my like controller, you know, LinkedIn invite. That's a good example. Or like my chili piper link, I can easily drop that in whatever it might be. Dang, I've got a whole list of new apps to go download. So this was great. And I guess I'm going to have to do it now because we're running out of time. And we got to move to the final question, Luke. The final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now I'm going to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what is one bad habit you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? Yeah, so it's actually the, the two-edged sword of what I've been talking about. A lot of what I do is try to bring value to my client, is try to take my experience and build inference around it that might be applicable to them. But there's a very fine line between inferring and assuming. Assumption is the worst thing a salesperson can do. And it has come back to bite me. I am just as guilty of it. So assumption really and, and, and inference are unfortunately the curse of experience. You know, I've seen this a couple of times. I've been through it. You can go and say, no, this is the way it has to be done. Or you can approach it with curiosity. Like we talked about next steps. Hey, I've done it this way before. Maybe you have a different way of doing it. The beauty of our craft really is that it's a human profession. So there's always a wrench to throw in the works. <laughs> so you just got to be able to take a breath ask a question before you assume. I have to, again, remind myself, especially on things like budget, who's holding the budget, all those things. I feel like we could always go deeper as sellers. That all just starts with being curious and not assuming. Even if you've seen the same play over and over and over again, and you think you know how it's going to go, the wrong way to harness that experience is to assume. The right way is to inform and tell them why you're informing them of that. Beautiful. Luke, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. 
This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Did you know that 60% of proposals are viewed on a mobile device, which means if you're sending a tech stock or a slide deck, the formatting is going to look really ugly and you're going to make a bad impression. Luckily, our friends at Quiller are here to help. Quiller pages are built on the web, which means they're mobile responsive and they actually look good on a cell phone. And Quiller is having an offer right now to upgrade your proposal from an ugly tech stock to a Quiller page for free. So you can see what your boring proposal looks like as a beautiful Quiller page. There is a link in the show notes to take advantage of the offer. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Luke Floyd include number one, build your sales process out step by step, and that will fuel how you ask for next steps at the end of every call. And it will also fuel our second takeaway, which is build templates for every part of your sales process once you have it built out. For example, you can have a discovery recap email, a group demo recap email, and you can even have a lost deal email at the end. And by the way, again, you can get all three of those in the show notes. And takeaway number three is once you finish that first discovery call and throughout the process, continue to recap the top three priorities. And if they end up sounding like below the line priorities or technical priorities, always recap those priorities in terms of the business problem, not in terms of that person's problem. And then lastly, number four, include rider language alongside your MSA to speed up the legal process at the end so that lawyers don't freak out when they read certain terms that are unique to your business. All righty, Nick, how can people help us out here? Well, just like Luke mapped out his sales process step-by-step for you, audience, I've got a step-by-step guide to steal Luke's templates. Step one, ensure that you are not operating a automobile. Step two, unlock your cell phone and open the podcast app that you're listening to this on right now. Step three, scroll to the show notes and click on the link to get Luke's templates. They're free. Go use them. Go steal them. Go sell more effectively and go join us next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes. 
This actionable tactic on selling to power is sponsored by SalesLoft. Don't start from zero when a champion introduces you to power. Explain the three to four priorities you learn from the champion, but then ask them to validate what's really important to them or what we missed. And we partnered with SalesLoft to give you a whole bunch of talk tracks on selling to power. The link is in the show notes.